Hey, listeners of the Bio Report, I want to tell you about a new member benefit from the California Technology Council. CTC has teamed with Reprovada to offer members six months of Reprovada's COT network service for free, which gives companies the power of a VPN at a fraction of the cost. A remote, flexible workforce is the new normal, but most corporate networks aren't built to accommodate work from home at scale. Reprovada's COT network offers an easily deployable, affordable, and scalable solution to securely enable remote workers and protect the corporate network. To learn more about this and other member benefits, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The complexity of neurodegenerative diseases has made it a challenging area for drug developers. Gene Kinney, CEO of Prothena, has long been involved in the pursuit of therapies for diseases such as Alzheimer's and believes there's been great progress in understanding and targeting these conditions. In fact, he says we're entering a golden age of neuroscience. We spoke to Kinney about the state of drug development for neurodegenerative conditions, Prathena's pipeline, and its efforts to target protein dysregulation in these diseases. Gene, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. We're going to talk about neurodegenerative diseases, the challenges of developing therapies for these conditions, and the role protein dysregulation plays. Before we do that, though, you're someone who's long been involved in drug development for neurodegenerative diseases. An area that's particularly been difficult is Alzheimer's disease. It seems to suffer from many late-stage failures. What do you think's been the problem? Has it been the complexity of these conditions, pursuing the wrong targets, or, or something else? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question, and thank you for that question. When you think about Alzheimer's disease, it is a complex disease. It's a disease that involves multiple pathologies. Um, you know, there are there are other components as well that one needs to consider, including inflammation, um, in in addition to the protein dysregulation. And so, thinking about how to actually target that from a from a biology perspective is one aspect. Um, once you have that biological hypothesis and that's, that's then moved into the clinical space, you have to get the clinical studies right. And, and that's an easy thing to say, um, but it's something that we've really seen evolve over the last decade, particularly in the Alzheimer's space, um, to the benefit uh, of the field. Um, you know, if you think about the earliest days of thinking about disease-modifying treatments in Alzheimer's disease, you really didn't have much to go on. So as you entered into the clinical testing space, a lot of those trials were based in large part on uh, on how we were testing for symptomatic agents. So, so very different patient populations, different ways of measuring benefits in terms of the clinical endpoints. 
And the field has learned quite a bit with with some experience now. And, and you know, I'd point to the recent work that's been done by Biogen and others um, where we've really seen the field advance. We're, we're much more sophisticated in how we select the right patients to, to examine in these types of clinical studies. We're using endpoints now that are more specific and more meaningful for those types of patients. So these endpoints being the ways that we actually measure the effectiveness of the interventional treatments. And, um, and I think we're also learning quite a bit about how to employ biomarkers um, in the context of, of selecting the right patient population and how we think about um, dosing and side effect profiles and what have you. And then so finally, you know, as, as both the, the basic science has advanced and now the clinical science has advanced, we've seen the regulatory science advance as well with an appreciation uh, of a number of the factors that I just discussed. And it really takes all three legs of that stool uh, to be equal um, in order to uh, bring a therapeutic to patients. And so what, what we see from our seat, having been in this space for some time, um, we're, we're actually very encouraged around. We've seen aducanumab now be filed for uh, the potential for approval for modifying the disease course in Alzheimer's disease. Um, we've seen recently that the FDA, at least from a health, uh, health regulatory assessment perspective, um, has accepted that on a priority review basis. We think that's appropriate and encouraging. Um, if in fact, uh, ultimately the, uh, the FDA uh, determines that, um, that the trials have met their standard for evidence of effectiveness, then, then we anticipate that that drug could be approved. Um, but of course, that's just the start. And we see a lot of opportunity um, to continue to improve the medicines in that space uh, for the benefit of patients. And we have a number of those types of programs in our portfolio, um, which I would be happy to discuss. But, um, but I think, you know, from my perspective, uh, in, in direct answer to your question, um, it's been very rewarding really over the last uh, decade or so to see now the, the basic biology, the clinical science and the regulatory science starting to converge and when we think about it that way, we really think we're at the dawn of a, a, a really a golden age of neuroscience and neurodegenerative research. So we're, we're very excited to be here and we're very excited to be uh, active in this space. Uh, it's interesting to, to hear you call it a golden age. Where, where exactly do you think we are in terms of our ability to understand the biology of these conditions and address them therapeutically? Yeah, so so it's it's a great question again, and and I think we've seen on the basic research side uh, the advent of a number of tools and modalities that that frankly um, didn't exist widely in the past. So our, our ability to think about bringing our understanding of genetics into play, um, what that means with respect to to biological pathway and how biological pathways um, are, are changed due to those genetics, what it means with respect to protein regulation, I think is something that we're learning quite a bit. And even the basic understanding of how proteins dysregulate at their start and ultimately misfold and start to aggregate and become pathogenic in the context of the disease, whether that's starting a disease process we're continuing and progressing a disease process or both, um, I, I think we're, we're understanding more and more about that. And what we try to do at Prothena is we really think a lot, not just about that protein dysregulation process and how it contributes to disease, but then how you 
optimally intervene in that process um, to, to provide the best biological outcome, um, which ultimately we would take into the patient population as we've done a number of times. So, so we see the advent of, of these types of tools being very important. Our level of sophistication and understanding um, has certainly improved over the years. And we're now seeing additional modalities, things like cell therapy, gene therapy, and what have you coming into the uh, neurodegenerative space. And we, we think that's exciting as well. From a, a drug company point of view, what's the opportunity? How big is the unmet need? Well, the unmet need is it almost can't be stated. I mean, when we talk about Alzheimer's disease, there are estimates that up to 35 million individuals across the globe uh, suffer from Alzheimer's disease. And in Parkinson's disease, uh, the, the second most common neurodegenerative disease, the estimates are upwards of 10 million uh, individuals across the globe suffering from that disease. And, and because these are diseases that increase with advancing age, and because our population is aging really at rates that we've never before observed in human history, you know, the magnitude and impact uh, of, of, you know, a pending crisis, quite frankly, with respect to um, the onset of these diseases and, and how, how incumbent they will become um, really should be alarming to all of us. It's very predictable. And I think where we see the field moving now is from a place where we have drugs that can treat the symptoms of these diseases. We ultimately need to move to a place where I think we're at the precipice, and this is what I would refer to as the golden age, where we can talk about now potentially slowing the progression of these diseases. Uh, and then ultimately what we see on the horizon is the ability to start to use additional tools and approaches where maybe we can start to restore function that's been lost even at the time of diagnosis. You mentioned protein dysregulation a moment ago. This is a focus that the company's taking. What is protein dysregulation and what role does it play in these conditions? Yeah, thanks for that. It's, uh, you know, when we talk about proteins, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty, pretty fundamental biological process. I mean, if you think about it, you know, the cells in your body make protein constantly. And those proteins are made for a reason. And when they're made, they need to fold in a certain spatial conformation. So they need to fold in a certain way in space, in large part, so that they can bind to other proteins and, and make whatever tissue it is that they're meant to be making. And in fact, you know, what happens oftentimes is in our cells, you know, protein may misfold, it may fold incorrectly. Um, and that can happen to varying degrees, depending on what the protein is. And we have systems in our cells to take care of that. So I, I point to the proteasomal pathway where, you know, misfolded proteins can become tagged. They can be sent to the uh, proteasomal pathway, um, basically knocked back down into their constituent building parts. And then we can go back to work again. In the case of a lot of these diseases that are characterized by protein dysregulation, however, those clearance pathways, that, that internal garbage system, if you will, or garbage disposal, if you will, um, becomes overwhelmed. And when that happens, these misfolded proteins have a propensity to start to bind to each other, start to aggregate and they do so in many times in a, in, a, in a very toxic conformation. And so when that happens, they can become toxic to the cell. 
And one of the things that we've learned over the last number of years is not only can they be toxic to the cell where that process is happening, but they can be released outside of the cell, taken up by neighboring cells, which can actually start a process of protein dysregulation in those neighboring cells. And so we think this idea of cell-to-cell transmission is very, very important with respect to protein dysregulation. And we also think that um, obviously there's there's cell-to-cell transmission, but also an autonomous part which happens in the cell, which directly leads to an inability of the cell to perform its normal function. Ultimately, when enough of this is happening, it's leading to disease, many times cell death. And obviously, when that happens in your brain, it becomes a problem in the context of neurodegenerative diseases. And so what we tend to do at Prothena is we try to understand that process what's actually happening in the context of these different diseases how are the different proteins dysregulated how do they begin to start to form those toxic conformations ultimately you know in an insoluble form where they start to deposit either inside the cell or outside of the cell and then what can we do to intervene in that process and and you know what we what we focus a lot on is first and foremost how do you interact with the protein in a way that will provide optimal biological benefit in the context of you know a number of different studies that we may run and then also how do we want to bind to that protein do we want to prefer the aggregate over the non-aggregated state and it's different really for every protein uh, that we think about which is which is unique to every disease that we think about and um, we have a number of those again at various points, uh, both in the clinical development stage as well as in our preclinical portfolio. Your lead candidate in development is parsonizumab, an experimental therapy for Parkinson's disease. What is Parkinson's disease, and and how does it manifest itself and progress? Yeah, it's a great question. So, and and maybe I'll answer that in the context of the protein that that we're actually targeting in Parkinson's disease. So, so when most folks think about Parkinson's disease, um, they think about the motor dysfunction that occurs um, as a consequence of Parkinson's disease. So, this would include things like tremor, um, slow, slowness of movement or bradykinesia, rigidity is another common symptom. You know, but as the field has become more sophisticated, one of the things we've learned is that Parkinson's disease really is a whole body constellation of symptoms. Um, We know, for example, that a number of individuals with Parkinson's disease very early in the course of their disease may have uh, gastrointestinal issues, things like constipation, for example, which can be very problematic for folks. Um, You know, when when we think about issues that are probably um, really neuronal in nature. Um, We can see things like uh, disrupted sleep patterns. We can see things like loss of sense of smell. Um, And then, you know, ultimately the motor dysfunction as well. But we also see, uh, you know, additional symptoms in patients as they progress in their disease. Um, We can start to see involvement of the ability to uh, mentate appropriately. So in other words, your cognitive abilities. And also even just emotional disturbances. And what's interesting about a lot of this when we talk about this protein dysregulation idea is that there's an important protein by the name of alpha-synuclein. And alpha-synuclein is a protein that's been implicated in, in both the cause and progression of Parkinson's disease. 
And what's interesting about alpha-synuclein in the context of, of the symptoms that I just described is that if you, you know, there have been a number of neuropathologists that have done series, brain series uh, of, of post-mortem tissue um, from individuals that had Parkinson's disease. And what they find is that at the very earliest stages of Parkinson's disease, um, you can see actually this pathology, this aggregated alpha-synuclein in areas of the brain that underlie these very symptoms. So areas of the brain uh, in the brain stem, for example, that underlie the ability to sleep appropriately. Um, so there's a, a, a component of um, of of Parkinson's disease known as REM behavior disorder, um, which some folks talk about as being even prodromal or preceding the movement dysfunction that's so typically thought of in Parkinson's disease. Um, we see areas like the olfactory bulb become involved, which underlie, of course, the ability to smell. Basal ganglia then becomes involved, and, and that's a, an important area with respect to motor function. And then later in disease, you'll see pathology in areas like entorhinal cortex areas like the limbic system, less important what they're called, but more important that the entorhinal cortex uh, underlies a lot of cognitive uh, activity. And, and of course, the limbic system is very involved in emotional states. And so, so these are actually, um, you know, really good indications that in fact, these related areas of the brain, these connected areas of the brain are actually seeing this cell-to-cell -cell transmission of the pathological forms of alpha-synuclein. So when we think about intervening, we think about it in multiple ways. First and foremost, can we actually do something about the alpha-synuclein that's already inherently deposited in, in the in potentially in the brains of patients that may have this disease? But also, can we knock down or slow that cell-to-cell -cell progression so that we can, when we think about a disease-modifying approach, it's it it is partly trying to protect neurons that are sick but not dead, but it's also about trying to slow the progression to new areas of the brain so that you can minimize the additional symptoms that may occur as part of Parkinson's disease. And what's known about the drug from the work that's been done to date? Yeah, so we've we've been working. So the 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 the, uh, the drug is prasinezumab, and it's a it's a therapeutic monoclonal antibody that's in clinical testing uh, for Parkinson's disease. Uh, it is a it is a treatment that targets the alpha synuclein protein. So the alpha synuclein protein, you know, is is a pretty long protein. It's about 140 amino acids long. And, you know, it took us some time to really map out that protein and understand in the various dysregulated forms, um, where did we exactly want to bind to this protein alpha-synuclein in order to modulate its biology? And so a lot of that basic science work has been done and published in scientific journal, journal articles. Um, and, and once we determined where we wanted to bind, what we also wanted to do is really bias this molecule towards the aggregated forms of alpha-synuclein over the non-aggregated forms. Non-aggregated alpha-synuclein is thought to have normal function. We wanted to make sure that our drug uh, preferred the abnormal forms, and so these would be the aggregated forms. And so we factored that into our thinking as, uh, as, as prasinezumab was being developed and discovered as well. Um, what we ultimately did was we looked, you know, at this in a number of preclinical studies, which suggested it to us that it had the correct properties to move forward into clinical testing. Um, we've run uh, two studies in phase one. So the first study was in uh, healthy volunteer patients or individuals 
Um, and, you know, the drug was seen to be um, generally safe and well tolerated in those studies. And we moved it then into a phase 1B study in patients with Parkinson's disease. And through the dosing paradigm, we found that the drug, again, was relatively safe and well tolerated. And importantly, in that phase 1B study, it was our first opportunity to really ask a fundamental question, which was, you know, is prasinezumab doing what we designed it to do? And the way we asked that question in the phase 1B study was to look at, at the blood of patients um, that had been treated with prasinezumab and ask if the alpha-synuclein levels, the unbound free alpha-synuclein levels were being impacted. And in fact, we found that through the dose range in a very nice dose-dependent fashion, we could actually see a reduction of free alpha-synuclein by up to 97%. Um, so that was encouraging. It told us the drug was doing what it was designed to do. But of course, that's, that's only the first step. Um, once you know you're affecting the biology in the way you intend, the next step is to ask the question of whether that matters with respect to clinical outcome measures, um, things that are important to the patients and to the regulators. And, and so the next step then was working with our partners at Roche to move this into a phase two proof of concept study. This, this study is called the Pasadena study. Um, what we're doing in the Pasadena study is we've, we're, we're asking individuals with Parkinson's disease who are relatively mild in their disease um, and are willing to, to not use symptomatic treatments, at least for the first year of treatment, uh, to, to enter into the study. Um, they'd be randomly assigned to either receive uh, placebo or one of two dose levels of prasinezumab. And what we're looking at in those patients is what, what, what decline they have or what progression they have in their disease as measured by a number of different uh, clinical endpoints. And then asking the question clinically whether prasinezumab slows that, that progression. And so that's the question being asked. There's uh, two parts to the study. The first part is exactly as I've just described. The second part of the study is an additional year. And here what we're doing is we're allowing patients to start on the symptomatic treatments as they like. Um, we're also t asking the placebo patients to move over to one of the two dose levels of prasinezumab so that everybody would be receiving prasinezumab. And of course, we expect that that will be helpful to really understand um, at a detailed level the safety of prasinezumab in conjunction with these symptomatic treatments. Now, the first part of that study, we're very excited because that data is now in, and we expect to be reporting that out uh, in early September at the Movement Disorder Society meeting. So we're looking forward to being able to share those data. And as I said, it's, it's really the first, um, the first therapeutic and the first readout that fundamentally asks the question, does intervening and interacting with alpha-synuclein in this way provide a disease-altering effect in patients with Parkinson's disease? Um, and you know, once we know that we can manipulate the biology in the way that we intend to, does that really matter? And, and the question of does that matter is now the question that we'll be able to start to speak about next month. And is the drug essentially binding with a pathogenic protein and thereby inactivating it, or is it doing something else? Yeah, so we, we think there's a couple of things that it does. One, one of the important things that it does is to um, actually knock down or prevent, uh, in some cases, this ability of the protein to transfer from cell to cell. Um, and we think that's a very important component. 
Um, we did work with a, a laboratory down at the University of California, San Diego, uh, led by Eliezer Maslia, who's now the director at National Institutes of Aging. Aging. Uh, and what his lab showed was that if he labeled the antibody, and this is um, actually a, a quote-unquote mouse precursor version of prasinezumab, um, so it's an equivalent but appropriate for a, a, a non-human species. Um, what he found was that, in fact, the, the antibody can get into the cell, and it associates with certain clearance pathways in the cell, so lysosomal pathways, autophagosomal pathways, and, you know, that's interesting as well because some of the things that we did observe um, before we moved this molecule into the clinic is that not only could we reduce pathology in, in the brains of animals that overexpress this protein alpha-synuclein, but in so doing, you, you saw a reduction of the, dis, uh, of the dysfunction between neurons. So in other words, neurons connect to each other. We could actually ask the question of whether we can maintain those connections um, concordant with reduction of pathology. And in fact, the answer to that appeared to be yes. And all of that um, ended up in doing some other things as well. It reduced inflammation in the brains of these animals. And then finally, that, that resulted in improved function, both on motor tasks as well as on cognitive tasks. So, so we think you know, there may be an intracellular mechanism, um, and, and that's based on that work done by the Maslia lab. And we, we certainly have done our own work as well, showing that uh, the cell-to-cell -cell transmission uh, is an important component to mediate with respect to the activity of these types of antibodies. I wanted to ask you about a second therapy in development. This is PRX004, which you're looking at to treat a, a number of neurological conditions, but the lead indication is actually ATTR amyloidosis. What is ATTR amyloidosis and, and how does it relate to the other conditions you're pursuing for this drug? Yeah, that's a great question. And so this this really comes down to our our expertise in protein dysregulation. So Pro PRX004 is targeting, as you say, ATTR amyloidosis. ATTR amyloidosis is a peripheral disease caused by dysregulated protein. So, so in this case, the protein that we're talking about is a protein called transthyretin. It's a relatively abundant protein for most of us. And, and what happens is this protein is made um, really in two places in the body, largely in the liver, um, but also in an area called the choroid plexus. And when it's made, it rapidly assembles into a tetramer, so a four units um, that come together. And, and that's its normal form. And, and that normal form underlies a normal function, which is, to, which is a carrier of thyroxin, uh, a transport system for um, vitamin A. So it, it, it's a transport system for retinal binding protein as well. And, and so it has a known form and a normal form and a normal function. What happens under normal conditions, we believe that tetramer will fall apart under normal kinetic conditions um, to its constitutive pieces and parts. And then that would quickly be metabolized um, you know, in various areas of the body. What tends to happen in this disease is for various reasons, and there's a genetic form of this disease as well as a non-genetic form, so for different reasons, that normal clearance pathway can become overwhelmed. And when that happens, the constitutive units, the monomers, if you will, each unit of that tetramer, that normal tetramer, as they break apart, has a longer period of time now to potentially misfold. And when that happens, 
they can start to re-aggregate in a non-normal conformation. And when that happens, um, ultimately you can see deposition of these protein aggregates in areas like the heart, uh, the GI tract and nerve bundle, leading to things like cardiomyopathy and neuropathy in the case of nerve deposition. Um, and this, in, in the case of cardiomyopathy, um, you, you see you can actually lead to pretty severe mor morbidity and mortality in these patients. So it's a very serious disease. Um, there are a couple therapeutics that are currently in the market, um, and what they aim to do is try to slow new protein from entering this non-normal pathway, this pathogenic pathway, if you will. Um, what PRX4 does is fundamentally different. What PRX4 does, it's been designed to not interact with the normal tetrameric form of TTR or transthyretin, but instead to interact with the abnormal forms in their, in their various states, whether they be in a soluble state or whether they already be deposited in different tissues. And what we've done is we've designed PRX4 so that once it interacts with, let's say there's, there's, there's this transthyretin amyloid in the heart of an individual, once it interacts with it, we've left the antibody intact so that it can actually recruit uh, an appropriate part of the innate immune system to come in and clear that amyloid from tissue. And we have some you know, preclinical data showing uh, kind of how that works. And so then the idea is that if you're an individual with ATTR amyloidosis who maybe already has a fair amount of uh, transthyretin deposited in your heart, and, and you may be a little bit more advanced in your cardiac state, that um, reducing new protein coming into the pathway may not be all that effective in that that may take uh, some time and maybe longer time than you're willing to wait or can wait um, given the severity of your disease. And what you would need in that moment is the ability to remove that amyloid much, much more expeditiously. And so what we have right now and where we are with PRX4, we have a phase one study ongoing. Um, there are two parts to that phase one study. The first is a dose escalation portion of the study where we're testing various dose levels of PRX4 in patients with ATTR amyloidosis and just ensuring the safety of that molecule. Um, the next stage then is a long-term extension where we allowed patients to uh, roll into additional infusions of PRX004. And there we focused on patients that had, uh, as part of their disease process, neuropathy. So this would be a dysfunction of the nerve bundles and nerve cells. And so, and in those patients, um, we're asking if we can uh, if we can slow what otherwise we know would be a normal progression of neuropathy in those patients. And so that's a question that we're asking. Um, we're excited because that data we expect to, to, to actually talk about um, at the, at, in the fourth quarter of this year. And what's the clinical path forward? Yeah, so, so we see the, the real unmet need in this space and the real need for patients as uh, in those uh, moderate to advanced cardiomyopathy patients. Um, the only drug approved right now for cardiomyopathy in ATTR amyloidosis is a drug by the, the generic name of Tefamidus, um, which is marketed by Pfizer. 
Um, that drug has, is, is broadly available for patients with ATTR, amyloidosis, cardiomyopathy. But what the literature tells us is that that drug worked pretty well in patients with mild cardiomyopathy symptoms. So these would be your New York Heart Association class one and two patients. But when you look at the data in New York Heart Association class three patients, the more moderate, moderate to severe patients, there really wasn't much of an impact there. And if you dig into the data, you start to see why. You know, the, the real impact of tefamidus in the more mild patients really started to kick in after about 18 months. Um, unfortunately, if you're further advanced in your cardiomyopathy with disease, you may not have 18 months to wait. And so, uh, so obviously, what, what we think um, makes sense is to think about those patients with a direct amyloid targeting agent. And we, and we have some experience from a prior program we ran in a different peripheral amyloid disease, where, where in fact, when we, um, when we went back and looked, the trial ultimately was unsuccessful, but we think part of the reason it was unsuccessful is because we were looking at both mild and advanced patients in that study and everything in and everyone in between and in the more mild patients, we, we really didn't see uh, a significant mortality. Um, in the more advanced patients, we did. So on the control group in that, in that study, um, in the most advanced cardiac patients, we saw a median survival of approximately 8.3 months. Um, in our treated arm, so this was a different agent, different disease, but a peripheral amyloid disease, that targeted amyloid directly, what we found was a, a hazard ratio uh, of, of below 0.5. And what that means is, is just better than a 50% relative risk benefit on all-cause mortality. So we think that's indicative of what might, what might be possible if you can directly target the amyloid in these more moderate to advanced patients. It, it's very much an unmet medical need in this space. Um, and, and ultimately, we think an interesting opportunity. Have there been learnings from that earlier effort that have translated into clinical trial design or other approaches? Absolutely. And yeah, I think you just heard one of them, which is, you know, I, I think the idea of targeting these more advanced patients makes a lot of sense to us. Um, you know, if you think about what might be happening, if you're talking about an amyloid disease in the case of the peripheral diseases where you've got a fair amount of pathology in the heart, well, clearly then the more pathology, the more advanced you may be in your disease state. And to the extent that our, our approach directly targets those pathological proteins, um, we think it's particularly well-suited in the periphery for those types of patients. So, so we think that's a really interesting place. That's not to say it may ultimately not be, um, be tested in more mild patients as well. We just understand that, that you may need a longer period of time to observe those patients in order to recognize any benefit. And so we'd see that as a kind of a, a subsequent approach um, following the establishment of, of activity in the more severe patients. Gene Kinney, CEO of Prathena. Gene, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. 
If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.